I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. And joining me this morning is Jen Maxfield, author of More After the Break, a reporter returns to 10 unforgettable news stories. Emmy award-winning reporter and news anchor and has just about everything in her more than two decades on the air, seen just about everything. But what happens after a story is reported once the cameras are turned off? She introduces readers to people whose hopefulness and perseverance will inspire. She follows up on stories that have been transformative for the subjects and for her to uncover what's transpired in the years since her original reporting, spotlighting inspirational everyday people, many of whom have endured tremendous hardship. She updates readers on a woman whose life was saved by her toddler after a violent attack by her boyfriend families devastated by natural disasters and the communities that aided them, the relatives of a young man killed by a terrorist, and more. Uh, Jen has uh, joined NBC New York in 2013, and prior to joining the station, she worked for Eyewitness News in New York City as a reporter. And welcome to the show. Nice to have you on today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, love the book. I mean, it was just, to me, interesting because I interviewed people in a, maybe in a different way that you do. But um, actually, I, I just want to say I was reading, I was supposed to read another book, but I couldn't put your book down. So I finished that instead. But, um, you know, all of these cases, these examples that you've given, the one thing that stood out for me was that this, what I uh, alluded to in the last couple of sentences of the intro was that you, the transformative nature of the whole process when you're interviewing people for you, not just for the person. I want to start with that because that was kind of a theme I felt throughout the book. When you, all the thousands, what did you say, 20,000 people that you've interviewed or more? Oh, um, I estimate that I've interviewed more than 10,000 people over the last 22 years. And that doesn't okay. mean they're all uh incredibly impactful interviews. It could be, hey, what do you think of that new red light camera on the corner? But the 10 that I highlighted in the book uh, really made an impact on me where, to the point where I was still thinking about the people years and even decades after I had interviewed them on the news. And then you went back, which is interesting, which is not usually the case, right, as, as a reporter necessarily. You interviewed them and then you tried to find them years later and see what happened to them, um, which i I guess, well, we could take one of the, one of the stories or two of the stories, and let's talk about what one was like the most significant to you, or they're all significant, I get that, but um, let's talk about one where you were able to actually contact the person or the families a few years later and say what happened to them. Sure, absolutely, and, and yes, I mean, there was something about all of these people, and, and you kind of alluded to this when you said... The, the perseverance and the triumph of the human spirit in all of these stories. And look, it's a big complaint, right, among viewers. And, and I hear it from my students at Columbia Journalism School, where I'm, I'm an adjunct professor. Why don't you ever follow up on stories? And so what I tried to do in this book was to really take my own genuine curiosity about what had happened to the people at the center of these news stories and translate that into a book that I think readers will be inspired by and feel very hopeful about. So I'll tell you, you asked about one of the stories. Uh, in Chapter 4, I talk about a little girl who I interviewed named Eurelis Bonilla. I interviewed her back in 2011, and she was very sick. She had a, a, an aggressive form of blood cancer. And the only 
person in her family who was a suitable bone marrow donor, a procedure that doctors said would save her life, was her sister Giselle. The only trouble was that Giselle lived in El Salvador, and the U.S. government had twice denied the family's request for humanitarian parole for Giselle to come into the United States to donate bone marrow to save her five-year-old sister's life. So by the time we got to the story, Urelis was very sick, and we uh, did the story on a Monday, and the humanitarian parole was granted by Friday. And Urelis's grandfather, Gertrudis, was the person who really pushed to get her story out to the media because the family felt they had no other options. They'd already tried all the routes with the U.S. government to get Giselle into the country. The last thing we heard at the end of 2011 was Giselle had come into the United States, the procedure was going to take place, and that was it. So when I started researching the book, it had been almost a decade since I had interviewed a Urelis. She was only five then. She's 15 now. And the process of, of not only trying to find her, but also wondering if she was still alive after all the medical challenges she had had. So I get into the book about how I had to go to the coffee shop where her grandfather worked and try to explain why I was looking to interview his 15-year-old granddaughter. And, and really the, the upshot of the, of the chapter is just to look at this family who was going through so much with this medical challenge and the media, me in particular and, and my colleagues in the media in general, had the opportunity to really make a difference in this child's life and to shine a light on this challenge that the family had. And Urelis is alive and doing well today, and her sister was able to, to make that bone marrow donation to save her sister's life in many ways because the story was featured on the local news and because her grandfather pushed so hard to get it there. And I reflect on the book, you know, what an incredible outcome for this family, but how many other families are there out there who are having challenges like this one who, who we just may not ever hear about? But it does show you the, the power and the impact of local news to really make a difference and a positive impact in a family's life. Yeah, and that's what I think was so interesting about the book, because as you know, people sometimes, they're critical of the local news. Why are they focusing on these poor families who lived, you know, have these tragedies, whether it's medical or, or you know, some kind of a uh, natural disaster, and I think that's in each one of the stories, not just this this one, but as you say, it's like it, it shines a light on the story, and it can have the impact that you said, uh, or just people being able to personalize it themselves if they're going through the same thing. All of those kinds of things. I mean, it's so it's it's really critical. The other thing I want to ask you, because you uh, you also talk about like going into literally face-to-face -face connecting with people and how important that is, even though sometimes when you knock on the door and you have a story, you feel like you're maybe invading their privacy. But that kind of a connection makes it the impact of the story usually is, is, is much more powerful rather than just, say, doing an interview over the phone. or um, the, There's a huge difference, that connection, that personal connection. Absolutely. That's such a critical part of my work is to go out into these communities, go into people's homes and businesses and shake their hands and look them in the eye and sit down and ask them to share their story with me. It's, it's such an act of trust for families to speak with us on, on what might be difficult days. And look, I'm a local news reporter, so I don't just go into communities, report a story and leave. I live 
in the same communities I'm reporting on. And so I have a, a vested interest and in deep roots in the New York, New Jersey area, and that's been important to me all along. And look, I also think the book talks a lot about bringing your whole self to work. So looking back at, at Eurelis's story, for example, when I was sitting in Eurelis's living room back in 2011 and this child who'd lost all her hair due to chemotherapy at age five, you know, here I am, she's showing me all the pictures that she's coloring. I'm a mom of three kids. My son was the exact same age as her at that time. So I think that, you know, my experience not only as a journalist, but as a mother, and, and having that experience and having that connection with Maria Ramirez, Urelis's mom, to put myself in her shoes and say, what would I be doing? How would I be fighting for my child in this situation? I do think that it gave me a deeper understanding of that family struggle, and that's also what the book is about. Because of the emotional intimacy that we have with people in these interviews where they are opening themselves up to us and trusting us with their stories, I thought that was a book worth writing, too, to talk about, look, we're not news robots, we're not neutral mediums, we bring ourselves and our life experiences to work, and and we're really asking people to open themselves up to us as well. And what's that connection about, the connection between the reporter and the subject? And I was so humbled that people even remembered who I was when I called Gertrudis and Maria Ramirez and the the dozens of other people who I interviewed for this book, the fact that they even remembered that I was the journalist who spoke with them during these tumultuous times, that was was surprising and humbling for me. But uh, it kind of proves your exam, I mean, uh, actually proves sort of what you're saying because you do, you have the ability and that's why you're so good at it to make that emotional connection. That's why they remember you. Because if you don't do that, they won't remember you. But they do remember you. And you, I mean, that key, that emo- I keep using the same word, but that emotional connection and, and how important that is. But, you know, another thing that you mentioned was the, I found it, that you don't do this on your own. There is always, I guess, the photographer, it's a team effort. There's always someone else with you. And that that's critical. That's that's very important to your work. Yes, I was, I think the photographers who've read the book and certainly the ones who were interviewed for it really feel seen by my book because, look, it's my face and my name on, on TV when you see the news story, but it is not 100% my work. I mean, I, I'm working with a team. So the photographer and I are working together. He or she is getting the images and the interviews, they're editing the story, they're setting up the live shot, and and beyond that, there's an entire other team of journalists who's working back at the station to make sure that we get our live shot on the air or that the studio is prepared to take our live shot. And I just think it's worth acknowledging all of these people who, who make up the community of journalists that gets these stories on the air. I mean, think about the deadlines, how challenging it is for us uh, and frankly, how challenging it is for the people we're interviewing, too, the fact that we get assigned a story in the morning, it has to be on the air that evening by 4 or 5 p.m., and that's it. Rarely do we even go back to report the same story two days in a row. So the deadline pressure is intense, and I'm so thankful uh, for my photographer colleagues just to be together on these stories in the field and to always have each other's back 
and to know that it, it really is a team effort, even though it's my face that you're seeing on the news. There's so much work from other people that goes into that. One of the stories uh, that I was sort of blown away with, I guess, and I've used it as an example. The one, the um, she, she was an international lawyer, I guess, and then it, then she really began to focus on all of, uh, being a, an Iron Man or an Iron Woman, or, uh, and doing these phenomenal kinds of. Uh, you know, swimming miles and walking and 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 doing the um, the iron, I, I, whatever the title is for that athletic. Um, sure, the event. Ironman triathlon. The, yeah, exactly. And that she ha- then was diagnosed with metastatic cancer and continued to do this after having chemotherapy. To you know, she having had chemotherapy two days before, and then she could st- still go out and win these athletic competitions. I mean, uh, just t- uh, totally inspirational. And I was act- I used that story for someone who was complaining about something. And I said, well, you should read the book and, and, and read some of these stories, but particularly this woman who's able to continue with her life, you know, riddled with cancer. I mean, that was a very powerful story. And then you have she was now uh, what has happened to her since well uh you're talking about isabella della Husay, who yeah. i completely agree i mean she exemplifies yeah. what i said about the triumph of the human spirit right i yeah. mean here's a woman who was doing all these ultra marathons and extreme athletic condi- uh competitions around the world she has five kids her kids are doing the competitions with her this is a woman who never drank never smoked had an incredibly healthy lifestyle and you're right, in, in her early 50s, she's diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer and given six months to live. And here we are, four-plus years later, and she's still alive, and she's thriving, and she's doing well. And last time I spoke with her, she said in, in the same couple minutes of our conversation, yes, I, I had this you know, treatment, and, and yes, I had chemotherapy, and oh, by the way, I'll be doing a marathon tomorrow. Um, but don't worry, I'm not running it. I'm walking it. So she's really just an amazing woman. And I'll never forget, She, I learned so much and I think grew a lot as a person just by reconnecting with these families and having the luxury of time and being able to spend more than a couple hours with them without that pressure of a deadline. And Isabella shared a a mantra with me and something that she thinks about a lot as someone who really is living day to day, again, four years into a six-month diagnosis. And she, she was telling me about the difference between hope and joy. And she said, hope is wonderful, but it always pertains to something in the future, something that's going to happen, something you hope is going to happen. She said, but you can find joy in small moments every day, and joy is available to you at all times, and you don't even have to think about the future. You can find joy in the now. And I just think that's such a beautiful sentiment, especially coming from someone who's, who's really thankful for, for every day she has here on this earth. I think that's well said, because I've always felt that, you know, wishing and hoping, you know, that's fine, but it's just kind of wishing and hoping, what's ha- is, just as you say, what's happening now, experiencing the joy of, of what's happening now. How do you, I mean, you're talking about deadlines, I want to get back to that, and you just mentioned pressure of deadlines and getting these stories in, which um, is a mon- monumental task in and of itself. How do you take care of yourself so that you can do this all the time on a daily basis. And you mentioned you have three kids, you have a husband. um, And then how do you integrate that 
with the work you're doing, and plus you teach at Columbia. <laughs> sure. So I, look, I, I, as you said, I have three children. I have an amazing husband. Um, I'm actually the oldest of six kids, so I also have a lot of siblings and my parents, and my work is very important to me, but my family is, is also incredibly important to me, and so I really try to unplug once I get home, and I do think that has been very useful for me to, you know, I work very hard during the day. My story goes out on the air at 4 or 5 o'clock, and then I go home and I plug my devices in, and, and I, be, I try to be present for my children and my husband. And look, my, my uh, emotional reaction to these stories I've been covering these last two decades pales in comparison to the people who are actually experiencing them, right? But I have been adjacent to all of this heartbreak and chaos and the, the things that I found to be very helpful as far as managing that for myself and being able to show up for work today and still be emotionally healthy for myself is, first of all, as I mentioned, I'm very thankful for my photographer colleagues and having their friendship and just sometimes we just talk for a little while after we've done a really emotional interview about, you know, our reactions and, and how we feel about it. Sometimes I will just have to go for a walk around the block in the middle of the news day and just get some fresh air. Perhaps I'll call one of my sisters or my brothers and talk about something that has absolutely nothing to do with the news story I'm covering. And I also feel that the research that I did for this book confirmed for me uh, really the significance of what I've been doing all of these years. And in some ways, it, it actually makes it easier now to continue doing it because, yes, all of these stories, for the most part, grew out of some sort of tragedy, whether it was an injury or an unjust incarceration, a natural disaster. But now with the benefit of hindsight, here we are, we're going back years or decades to really look at the impact of what happened to that person and, and the impact of having it featured in the public, right, on the news. And what you can see is that whether it's someone becoming an advocate for other people with disabilities or somebody finding joy again in their life or somebody even lobbying lawmakers and changing laws so that somebody else doesn't have to experience the same tragedy, you really see the impact uh, of these stories in the long term, and it just has given me a great sense of purpose about the fact that you really can change things and make a big impact on the community you live in uh, when stories are featured on the news and the public is invited in to know what's going on. And, and you probably, or it's impossible for you to even know the impact you make because everyone connects with your stories or the, the examples that you gave uh, in a different way and can use those stories in a very positive way, probably in ways that maybe you don't even know. You know some of them, and obviously you've, you've interviewed these people. I mean, I'm thinking the one you, the example of the um, the couple whose only son was killed by the terrorists, that was right in my neighborhood. And that very spot is where I walk with my, at that time, with my grandson and a baby carriage. And that event happened a few months later. And um, so that was a very also powerful story. And um, that was their only child, I think, right? This Darren? Yes, Darren Drake was the only child, the son of Jimmy and Barbara. And 
Jimmy and Barbara Drake have made it their mission to um, share their son's story. He was an incredible young man, 32 years old, just uh, you know, going for a second master's degree, a beloved person with his family and friends. And they've started a foundation in his memory, and they're helping a lot of other young people in the community, New Milford, New Jersey, where he grew up. And they talk about, after I interviewed Jimmy for the news, that, that all of these people started reaching out to them, and, and people showed up at Darren's Wake, and they came to the house with food. So you're right. I mean, the impact on the community is felt when we do put out these stories to the public. And sometimes, to your point, we have no idea who we've impacted. I mean, you mentioned uh, earlier in the interview the story of Tamika Tompkins, this woman who was stabbed 27 times by her ex against whom she had a restraining order. Um, She survived this domestic violence attack and spoke to me about it from her hospital bed. I, I always talk to her about how I think she's so brave, and she will never know how many people watched that interview that night and heard what happened to her and, and decided, I need to get out of my own abusive relationship. I need to leave this situation or perhaps never got into it in the first place because of the story that she shared. And I do think that, that that's the impact of covering news in a community and of sharing these stories and inviting the public in. I mean, look, sometimes people think, oh, you're asking all your questions. This is what you want. But in some ways, I'm a proxy for the community, right? When I'm asking the questions, I'm trying to determine. I, I serve the viewer. So I'm, I'm trying to think about, well, what would the viewer want to know from this person? What would be helpful information to put out there to the public. Jen, when you're teaching your class in journalism at Columbia, are you able to, I don't know how many students you have in the class and how, uh, you know, how the, exactly how you run your classroom, but um, are there students that stand out that you can say, I know this, I, you know, I that I have a sense that this person is really going to be able to do what I do, you, or people who maybe are good academically, but maybe this is not the work for them? Well, the good news is is that right now in journalism, there are so many different directions you can go, whether you want to be uh, on camera or a producer or now with technology advancing the way it is. I mean, we have newscasts going on to Snapchat and Instagram. So I will say I learned so much from my students at Columbia I think they're incredible. I think that they, and for the most part, they're 20-something years younger than I am. And I think that this generation is not only motivated, but they have such a good sense of telling authentic stories. They've grown up with YouTube and FaceTime, and, and they, they have, a, have had a camera on their phone for quite some time. And it just seems to come much more naturally to them than it did to me and I think to a lot of people in in my generation. And so I talk a lot about reverse mentorship where I, as much as I mentor my students, certainly while they're in my classroom, but also after they go out into the world and they're all working at incredible places, I really feel that I learn a lot from them and that that reverse mentorship piece is happening too where they're really teaching me. But no, I mean, I would say, listen, by the time they've gotten to the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism, They've done a lot of work, and they've earned their place there, and I think it's my job 
to just mentor them and, and encourage them to tell these authentic stories and, and to try to help them figure out, you know, what, what are their strengths? Is it writing? Is it producing? Is it editing? And, and try to help them follow that path. Yeah, well, I, I hadn't thought about that. But as you say, there's just so many um, different opportunities for them, different than maybe, as you say, than 20 years ago. I mean, with the internet and, um, and, and technology and all those kinds of things. So there are a lot of different directions they can take, I guess is what you're saying. And they have to be able to be aware of what their skills are and then, and then to, you know, follow that path, whatever that happens to be. Um, what about more stories? I mean, we've covered just a couple of them. So, you know, I think we've kind of whetted everybody's appetite because there are a lot more stories in the book. Um, but what are you doing right now? Um, share with us some of those experiences. Oh, do you mean uh, at, at work right now? Or are you asking me if there's going to be a volume two of the book? Well, <laughs> well maybe I'm asking both questions. Is there going to be a volume two of the book? It's a little early to say. This one's been out for less than a month, uh, and I have been really so touched by the reaction that I've gotten to the book. I mean, they put my book up at one Barnes & Noble in the current events section, and I was amazed that with all the other books, mine was the only one on the top two shelves at this. Uh, my book's at a bunch of Barnes & Nobles, but at this particular one, my book was the only one on these top two shelves that was not about... Trump, Biden, or January 6th. And I'm not saying those other political issues are not important, but it's hard to believe it's the only one that's, that's not about those topics. And I just feel that perhaps it's, it's a breath of fresh air and a return to human interest stories and, and reporting on people and, and really leaning into just the beauty of, of telling people's stories and, and respecting the the passage of time and really the amazing things that people are capable of doing despite the adversity that that they've faced. So, we'll see if there's another if there's another volume 2. I mean, look, with 10,000 interviews under my belt, I think that I could I could certainly find uh more stories to put in the next book, but um for right now I'm I'm still out there reporting for NBC and I'm looking forward to being back in the classroom and and the book tour continues. Once we get started to the academic year, I'll be um, traveling around to different book events and also speaking at universities across the country. Well, congratulations, a great book. And the title of the book is More After the Break, A Reporter Returns to 10 Unforgettable News Stories. Jen Maxfield is the reporter. Website and or websites we can go to to more information or to buy the book and more information about you. Oh, sure. So I have my website, jenmaxfield.com, and that'll tell you a little bit more about me, and it'll direct you to how you can buy the book. And I, I just look forward to hearing from readers and your listeners. And thank you so much for having me on today. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Take care. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 